This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Was it possible that at every gathering, concert, peace rally, love-in, be-in, and freak-in, here, up north, back east, wherever, some dark crews had been busy all along, reclaiming the music, the resistance to power, the sexual desire from epic to everyday, all they could sweep up for the ancient forces of greed and fear? That's a question Doc's mind with the munchies chews on an inherent vice, both the book and the film. Gee, ultimately thinks... I don't know. Well, today's guest certainly thinks so, as he walks us through the lattice of beastly beneficiaries to the betrayal of a generation, a movement, a decade, a country, COINTELPRO informants, conspiranoid CIA ops, mismanaged and malevolent FBI agents, rogue LAPD officers, and that strange sick fuck Charlie Manson himself, and just how easily they can swing you to their side with a simple conversation in a room a lot like the one Doc finds himself in today. Stylistically, Paul Thomas Anderson's career is one divided by a distinct schism. Those hoping the Valley-obsessed director would return to the cocaine-fueled dollies, smash cuts, and whip pans of his early pictures are going to be sorely disappointed, because Inherent Vice is at one with his later films, possessing the distancing austerity of There Will Be Blood and The Master. But, the brash youngster who gave us a Scorsesean boogie nights in Magnolia meets his Kubrickian elder self in his middle, as both aesthetic halves are unified by his distinct molding of character. The easy comparison to make here would be the colorful nitwits and stoned would-be detectives who populate the cartoonish L.A. of the Coen brothers' The Big Lebowski. However, the truth is that PTA is reaching back to his roots and attempting to channel his mentor, Altman, particularly the director's work with Elliot Gould, along with the dope-loving boorishness of something akin to Cheech and Chong's next movie. The biggest challenge to speaking the language of inherent vice is when the cinematic stoicism and rampant buffoonery collide head-on, resulting in a dissonant tonal juxtaposition. It's the filmic equivalent of smoking a joint with your very wise family member, who just happens to be graced with harpist Joanna Newsom's playful chirp, as she paints a vivid portrait of a paranoid, perplexing time in which you probably never existed. That is today's guest on the smog-fogged, melancholic majesty of PTA's adaptation of Inherent Vice. He's a writer whose work spreads across such publications as Rebeller, Fangoria, Birth Movie's Death, and Dark Moon Digest, as well as his myriad of invaluable capsule reviews that can be found on Letterboxd, for films that range from premier prestige pictures to magnetic tape-warping megatonic obscuro schlock. He's someone whose writing makes me interested and engaged in every fucking film he writes about, which is why he's my guest today on what is maybe the one scene I sort of kind of have difficulty connecting with in all of Inherent Vice. And so, Jacob Knight, how the hell are you? 
I'm good. Thank you for having me. That's, uh, you know, you have to stop doing these intros. Um, they're great, but it makes me feel like I have something to live up to. Um, <laughs> and I haven't lived up to anybody's expectations in my whole life, and I'm not going to start now. So apologies beforehand. Well, you will fit right in here with me, a grown-ass man with a Inherent Vice podcast. So yeah, right. We belong together. So. Yeah, we Jacob, do. We belong together. All right, you, you're you're here. You're among friends. That works. And plus, I got I got a I got a you know I got to butter you up a little bit. You're you're nice enough to come on and talk about this six year old movie with me. I you know I have to I have to make you feel special. And you are special. You're special to me. Damn it. Oh, thank you. I've got to be <laughs> special to somebody because my cat wouldn't take a nap with me earlier tonight. Oh, it hurts my heart. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on today, because as I said, your writing is something I intensely, intensely enjoy. Uh, the way you can concisely dig into why a movie matters, why a movie works, why a movie is important. Uh, whether, I, as I said, whether it's a, a prestige picture or it's you know something that you can only find on a battered, uh, battered VHS tape in the back of a video store. You always make me interested in what you have to say. And this is kind of a movie, or excuse me, this is kind of a scene in which I have a hard time focusing, weirdly enough. I know I love this movie. I love this movie so much more than I love just about every other movie. But this is this has always been a scene that I have a little bit of difficulty getting my arms around. Um, and which is interesting because I find it to be one of the scenes that actually unlocks the movie for me to a degree. Um, because, uh, I'm going to be honest, uh, I kind of, when you asked me to be on the show, um, I decided to approach, uh, this, uh, let's say guest appearance as, uh, with a, a certain type of methodology is that, um, I, I basically, I listened to every episode of Increment Vice, um, and then... <laughs> I, because I wanted to basically get your perspective on the movie um, and your guest's perspective on the movie. And then I wanted to revisit the film immediately after and see if that tainted or changed at all the way that I viewed it. Um, and what I found is that uh, I disagree to a degree with uh, your take on it. Um, and, you son and of a bitch. Some, and some of your get not not in a negative way. It's just I I I think there's a divergence in perspective um, that we kind of have in that uh, I you you very much uh, connect with the movie on an emotional level where I still find it to be an intensely cerebral exercise uh, hmm. a lot of the time. Um, and I know that you know you you very much have gone and said time and again on your show about how, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson basically made a movie about like uh, the, the idea of like loss and like, what can you live without? And how does uh, this relationship between uh, doc and Shasta Faye and their uh, kind of, let's say dissolution, like how does that represent um, the loss of a decade to like pension? But like, 
PTA is very much more interested in, let's say, the humanistic side of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree with that to a degree, but I also think the movie's a, a very, very political film, um, and that, that that's the side that I find myself, uh, every time I watch it, kind of diving into, while never forgetting the fact that you are dealing with Paul Thomas Anderson and he's a guy who I I think every movie that he's ever made can be summed up with his very glib uh, Valley boy retort of uh, it's just about love, baby. It's about love, baby. Yeah. And I think, I think that that shines through in this movie as well, uh, as well. Um, But I also think that, he made two movies at the same time and maybe not intentionally. If that makes sense. I think I get what you're saying. Uh, I will say, how dare you come on this show and, and and challenge me. I don't go to where you live and tell you that you're wrong about some of your favorite films. I just went, I just went off. I complimented you. I complimented how insightful you were. And then you come here to my home where I live. No, I, I no, that's great. This this will be a fun conversation then because uh you know I I really nerd that I am for this film. I really do love hearing what everyone else thinks about it, especially if they have a differing opinion or a divergent opinion. Because uh you know I can be very I can be very myopic <laughs> in my obsession with this film now that I've decided what it is to me, and so it's really really exciting to to hear what someone else thinks that's a little bit different um and one thing that you that you wrote in your original review of the film for synapse back in the day uh you mentioned something uh you wrote the biggest challenge to speaking the language of inherent vice is uh when the cinemax stoicism and rampant buffoonery collide head-on and that to me is this is this scene very much so uh, I want to. I want to loop. We haven't watched the film, the the sequence yet, and I want to loop deeper into it after we do that. But I do think that maybe one of the reasons I have a hard time with this sequence is that it feels like it's striving for the broadly comic, but it is it is done in that very kind of dour, minimalist, almost. You know, in the last episode, we kind of compared. PTA's filmography to the discography of Radiohead. This is this is him very much in his King of Limbs phase, but trying to do what is a very comic scene. And something about that tonal juxtaposition, it always just kind of throws me in this scene a little bit. It's always kind of, I never quite know where I'm at in it, and I uh, never have the ability to really get my arms around it. Sure, and uh, plus, it, it uh, doesn't help when... Um... Uh, Timothy Simons is on screen because all I ever see is uh, uh, Jonah from Veep. So when his big lurch-looking ass shows up as a <laughs> as a federal agent, I'm like, what is what is this guy doing here? Because I I never find him anything less than than utterly hilarious. Um, but I think what's also, and not to jump too far ahead about the scene too, is that uh, what I I think is cool about it is that it serves a couple different purposes. Is that um, it clarifies a particular theme that I really uh, connect to in the movie, uh, a political theme, let's say, 
But also, I think it's really great because it's one of these scenes that kind of shows you how Doc can take control of a situation um, mm-hmm. and how competent he can be, um, which, you know, it's very easy to get lured into the idea of, of Doc Sportello um, as being kind of this bumbling goofball uh, for a lot of the movie. But, like, he's way sharper then he lets on for a, a solid chunk of the movie. And he, uh, in a strange way, is always kind of a few steps ahead um, of some of the people that he's talking to, while also being simultaneously lost in, as you even put it, the <laughs> the kind of fog and the haze of yeah. uh, both weed and just the mystery in general. You know what? You're doing it already. I, I like the scene more already. And it's uh, it's not that I disliked it. It was just this has always just been the moment where I don't connect emotionally to the film. But already I'm I'm digging it more just hearing you say that. And before we dig into the scene proper, uh, I do want to say for those of you who are listening that yes, yes, Jacob and I can hear that that annoying chime that keeps coming up every couple of minutes in the studio that I am in today. Someone has snuck a phone in and left it, and in a very kind of inherent Vicean way. It's just going to continue to go off and drive me slowly fucking mad. And so everyone's going to have fun listening to that. Uh, well, you on... know what? It had stopped there for a few minutes and then you brought it up. Like, yeah, but it's going to keep happening. Would... You think so? I, I'm just hoping that it goes away at some point. Like whoever's sexting at the moment, just, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe they're done. The boner is gone. <laughs> Well, that's what a what a what a lovely line, because this is an end of the era movie. The boner is gone. It's a fitting. It's a fitting epitaph for this episode already. Uh, (laughs) That said, you you're one of the true believers. You've loved this film since it's since it's released, right? I have. um, But I, I would be lying if I didn't say that my relationship to the movie didn't change over the last six years, um, because I still believe uh, I saw it very early um, uh, in in 2014, right around the time that I believe it was it was receiving. I'd have to check the dates, but um, where it was receiving a, a general release in New York and L.A., I believe. Yeah, it was, uh, it was um, mid-December. Yeah, because I saw it. Uh, I I think I had to go back and check. Is I I saw it on December 14th. Uh, 2014 um, but I to me saw it under conditions that were cool but at the same time not ideal to take in a movie that is as dense as Inherent Vice is because I saw it at uh, Butnamathon um, where it was the fourth movie I believe and like it was sandwiched in like uh, we had just seen um uh it was the fourth movie of the day but it was sandwiched in between like big premieres as well like we had uh, we were one of the first if not the first audience to see the kingsman uh that was introduced by samuel l jackson um and then i believe immediately after inherent vice we were uh again maybe maybe the first or not one of the first audiences to see the interview uh, with Seth Rogen there right before 
all of that shit with with the interview happened where like North Korea got mad at it or I my memory is very hazy of what the hell actually happened because it also <laughs> kind of felt like a publicity stunt yeah. to a degree um but like North Korea got mad at it and then like the studio pulled it or something so like uh, I which I found incredibly hilarious having seen the movie and all this shit was basically going on and I'm like I mean this is a film in which Katy Perry or like James Franco sings Katy Perry with a North Korean dictator. How dangerous are we really going to label this film? Like it's <laughs> intensely silly. Um, but uh, back to inherent vice, like I, as much as I loved it the first time, I, I instantly knew I had to see it again, just because watching this movie in any kind of marathon setting doesn't do it any kind of, uh, it doesn't, it, it does it a disservice, let's say, because I this is the type of film, especially the first time that you watch it, that you should watch and then you should be able to chew on for a little bit um, mentally. And like jumping straight from this into the interview is like, yeah, like I, just total whiplash, you know? I can't even imagine what that has to be. I mean, I've seen this as part of like a double feature before. I've seen this doubled with the long goodbye. I've sure. seen I've seen this doubled with at least those complement each other though. Yeah, yeah, I mean I've seen it with The Long Goodbye. I've seen it doubled with uh Demi's uh, uh Model Shop. You know, films that kind of speak and have a conversation with one another. Sure. But Jesus Christ. That that that's a that's a weird way to watch this movie and to really to to soak up and absorb its melancholy in between The Kingsman and the interview. But hey, yeah. one thing one thing you can say in Hair Vice, a movie so good even North Korea loves it. Yeah, even you know, North Korea didn't protest this movie. No, they, they didn't want to go to war over in Hair Vice. Who, who could? Fine. Who could? They were, they were fine with it. But yeah. no, I mean, I think when I watched it um, this week, uh, it was the fourth or fifth time I've watched it. I want to say, you know what? I think we're at four now because I, I saw it uh, during that, the but Namathon event. Um, I didn't actually go back and see it in theaters during general release, which I, I feel kind of bad about now in hindsight. Um, and then I believe I saw it on Blu-ray when it was originally released. And then um, you'll get a kick out of this being the massive inherent vice geek that you are. Uh, <laughs> I have a, a good buddy here in, in Austin who is basically like one of my, my, uh, cinema soulmates, we'll say. And um, Draft House was playing a 70 millimeter print of Inherent Vice downtown at the Ritz. And I went to him and I was like, oh, we should go, Inherent Vice. And he kind of looked at me and he was like, you know, that's the one Paul Thomas Anderson that I just, I, I don't know if I like it. And I was yeah. like, really? That's interesting. And he was like, yeah. He's like, I don't think it's bad. It's like, he was just like, you know, I just didn't connect with it on any real level and i'm like well i feel like this is the perfect time for you to check it out like you get to go watch it in 70 and like just see if maybe you know we can finalize an opinion on it and he's like all right let's do it um so we went and we watched it and he had such a reversal of an opinion on the movie that he actually grew his beard out to look like Doc Sportello's mutton chops and then cut them into it and kept them that way for about the next year or so 
to the point that his his longtime partner looked at me at one point and she was like, hey, man, is there any way that you can talk him into <laughs> shaving? Because I fucking hate these mutton chops. And I was like, I can't tell him shit. And honestly, <laughs> I think it's kind of hilarious. Aww, so, bless no. his heart. He's going to have to have a bonus episode. Yeah, uh, like he... Uh, he really turned around on it because I remember we walked out of the theater and he was like, you know what? That movie is great. And I'm like, eh, yeah, I, I believe so you, too. You are fighting the good fight out there. One person at a time, turning them around. Good for you. Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest with you, man, though. Even this week when I watched it again, it's, and I threw something up on Twitter, uh, to, that kind of expresses this sentiment is that it's strange. It's like every time I watch Inherent Vice, it's a great, great film that I just get sucked into and kind of let wash over me. Um, but for whatever reason, and you probably have films like this in, in your life, uh, especially when it comes to like great directors and stuff, is that uh, you think about a movie within the context of a director's filmography and you go, oh, well, this is like middle of the pack. Yeah. Or maybe this is towards the, bo the bottom for me or whatever. And for whatever reason, I have that in my head about Inherent Vice um, as going into this viewing is that I, for me, I was like, oh, this is like middle of the pack, maybe bottom PTA. But then I watch it and I go, mm, no, this, uh, this might be like top tier, top three, Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, because it's just... It's definitely his headiest movie, uh, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> but it, it's it's also his densest. But uh, to to the kind of the point that you were saying in your intro um, to me, this might be for me his most Kubrickian film, at least from a visual standpoint, because of all of those like intensely slow dissolves the way that scenes like bleed into each other. And the, the, the editing in this movie is just, uh, it's incredible, man. Like you, it, it really creates this tableau of, of, uh, both, uh, it, it, it combines the head and the heart in a way that uh, I don't think any of his other movies really ever achieved, um, and I was really, really taken with it this week again. And uh, again, I, I came away from it going, nah, this might be his masterpiece. I'm not sure. Or at least one of his masterpieces. <laughs> oh, I mean, you certainly know where I fall on that in on that yeah. spectrum of the conversation. So won't uh, I won't run you through it again. I will ask, you know, you are someone, as you've said, you've admired the film since its release and you are a. A movie obsessive so i know that you you think about this shit the way i do the silly stuff you said that as you've come back to it about four times now the reason it hooks you it seems to change as you get older right like the thing that hooked you the second time you saw it doesn't maybe be that it's not quite the thing that hooks you the fourth time and it's because for me it's a film that has this this kind of emotional modulation that matches where I am in life at the time that I watch it. It never, it never ceases to be the movie I saw six years ago, five years ago, four years ago, two years ago. But it becomes a different film on top of that too. With sure. Each, with each subsequent viewing, and it seems like that happened to you again this time out. Um. Yes. 
Uh, I think it's worth noting that I was married when I saw it the first time. So uh, revisiting it since, I, I had since gotten divorced after eight years of marriage. So there is the element of examining it through that lens of like what happens to uh, you as a person um, after the, the kind of dissolution of, of one of your, let's say, defining relationships in your life. And how do you, how do you view that? How do you look back on that? How do you um, kind of reconcile who you were as a person then and who, is you, uh, who are you as a person now? Which I think is kind of a key to understanding uh, Doc as a character. Um, it's one of the things that I really love about the movie is that to me, it's a it's a movie about self-realization at a certain point sure. um, and realizing maybe you perceived your own relationship in a way that it wasn't, um, which I think is great. Man, God bless whoever you have on this show that has to talk about. I think uh, in the one in the episode with uh, Jimmy uh, Hemphill said something similar is that God bless whoever you have to talk to about that uh, Shasta Faye <laughs> sex scene and yeah. monologue because it's such a phenomenal scene. And, and, and Catherine Waterston in that moment is like just operating on a whole other level. But at the same time, very, um, let's say, difficult scene from a, a kind of sexual politics angle and also just an angle of, of analyzing Doc as a character. Because to me, it becomes a moment in which he uh, realizes maybe something more about himself than anything else uh, and how he maybe perceived his relationship with, with Shasta Faye to a degree. Um, but so yeah. there's that, uh, that, you know, I did kind of evol evolve as a person from then. But also I think the one thing about this movie that, confounds a lot of people is that it um it speaks to a very particular moment or at least a particular side of american politics in a way that um maybe as you get older and as you develop your own views or at least you solidify your own views and your own kind of perception of uh both where we are now as a country and as, and as a, a world politically and as we kind of were then, like you might interpret it slightly differently as you, as you get older, uh, because obviously we're, we're always changing or our views on the world are always evolving and everything. And like, um, again, I think that's a big part of what this movie is about. To me, Inherent Vice is very much about and I, I hesitate to use this term because I, I believe it's be, become perverted to a degree, uh, but I think it's a movie about wokeness um, and becoming, having your eyes opened to a particular moment in, in history and viewing it uh, maybe without uh, rose tinted glasses on. Oh no, completely. I, I, I completely agree with that. And it's, it's interesting that you, you know, I'm always, as you said, you know, I'm always connecting this film to the more emotional aspects of it, I think. And I can see how uh, this is going to be a good talk because I, I think you go to the other end of the spectrum on that. 
um, as you said, to the more to the more political implications of the film. But no, I totally agree, and I that scene that you mentioned, the the sex scene, which Jesus, that's going to be a fun day uh, to chit chat about that one. Uh, that that scene to me is exactly as you said. It's it's is as if Doc is having to look at someone clearly for the first time, and in looking at Shasta clearly for the first time, I think it kind of forces him also to look at himself a little bit more clearly and recognize that this person is maybe it's someone he loves, still loves, maybe not quite the person that he idealized or that he built his idealization around and what that has to say about himself as well, that well, he, he would do that. Well, that, and I also think that it, speaks to how um women in general were perceived maybe during the 60s and the free love movement as uh objects to a degree mm-hmm. um and how you know there's a unity in that moment between doc and mickey wolfman that he might not have realized and that they both perceive shasta Faye as something to be possessed instead of uh let's say sharing an existence with or 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 seeing each other's per- perspective or maybe empathizing with because um you know in that moment and again we're jumping way ahead in the film as um, someone who's listened to this show you know that it happens every time yes it's an entire show made out of digressions let's say much like the movie uh but you know in that moment he's very much seeing that um, women may have been perceived as objects within, you know, kind of the free love movement. And Shasta Faye even challenges him at one point and basically says, well, is that what you want? Did you always want a, a Manson like girl who, you know, basically drops to your feet and, and does your, your every bidding, you know, sexually and otherwise, and it's something to really consider in that moment is like, what did Manson and his control over his family and, and particularly the, the women of his family, what did that represent on kind of a broader uh, political or sociopolitical uh, kind of scale in terms of like what the free love movement was? Did the men in the free love movement actually see them as equals? Did they see them as women and, and, and people to be empathized with, or did they simply just see them as another conquest, as another thing to, to have and to hold and to possess? And that's, uh, I think that's really interesting to consider. And I think that's something that Doc in that moment considers and never had considered before. Sure. And, you know, I, I think you're, you're, you're so right when you, when you talk about, uh, the way women were treated, well, the way women are treated, but the way yeah. women were treated in, in, especially in, you know, the the more openly permissive free love movement, when you would have a guy like Wolfman taking advantage of that and being so possessive, and you know, with his 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 tie rack of conquests, and how he would, you know, even farm his girls out, his 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 women out, his girlfriends, his side flings out to his friends if that's if that's what he deigned to do for the day and while doc is certainly not that 
I do think that there is perhaps a moment in that scene where he does see a little bit of a Venn diagram overlap in his uh, melding his desire for Shasta a little closer to to Wolfman's in that I do think that he he has built up a version of Shasta that might not exist, that might not be real, this idealized vision of her. And I think it's yeah. easy it's easy for anyone to do that. And then you don't see it as being possessive and you don't see it as being almost like a conquest. But there is that, I think maybe that unspoken part of you that's just like, just be the person that I see in my head. Just just be that person. Not One realizing that, that how, how possessive that is. Well, even think about how that scene even ends. It's, it ends with violent sex and her basically fucking her into submission yeah. to a degree. And it's, and it's that release of like, this is what you wanted. And then at that, at the, again, no pun intended, climax, um, you see that it's not, this isn't a happy act anymore yeah. it's not an act of love it's literally an act of aggression at shasta has uh has, she has tears in her in her eyes yeah. and rolling yeah, down her cheeks well and also like his face suddenly changes because it, again it's that that moment of epiphany of like maybe this is how i always viewed her maybe i viewed her incorrectly throughout even our own our our time together that i considered so idealized and and, and like my version of like the love of my life but I also think in terms of the Venn diagram, um, it's it's interesting to consider uh, Mickey Wolfman as a character, even though we don't really know him beyond being kind of this uh, walking MacGuffin to a degree that he's <laughs> he, that that uh, Doc is pursuing throughout the movie. Um, but like you, you just even mentioned that, you know, he farms Mickey Wolfman like farms the these girls out that he uh gets involved with and again not to i am going to bring up manson a lot in this but because i believe the entire movie kind of lives in the shadow of manson uh to a degree but there's no real difference between what Mickey Wolfman did with farming girls out and what, you know, if you ever do any kind of deep dive re research into Manson and the family and his harem of women is like, that's what he would do. He would use his women as bartering chips and as yeah. um, ways to essentially satisfy everyone from, you know, George Spann on the ranch to uh, Dennis Wilson, when he basically was trying to uh, infiltrate, Hollywood and make a record with Terry Melcher uh, on Cielo Drive and um, you know and also uh, not to kind of bounce off and disagree with you on something again but I, I find your interpretation of Bigfoot and Bigfoot's let's say oh, you're coming you're coming from my heart now uh, Jacob, you well, are coming from my heart well I'm just saying that uh, his I think the moment when when Bigfoot says no Cielo Drive for Bigfoot, no TV rights for Bigfoot, <laughs> like, yeah, I think that's a moment of, like, sadness for him. But I think it's more of a comment 
um, because Pynchon wrote this book in what 2006 or so. I mean, I, it came out right. in 09. It's like I, have, I, I don't because we don't uh, have a, a bevy of conversations with the man. I'm not sure what the the gestation period for it was and how long it took but him I mean, to write. Like he, but yeah, came out. But in he 09. wrote it in the 2000s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, certainly. Okay. It came out in 09. That's more what I was going for. It's when it when the book was released. Is that so? This is very much a reflection on a time period that he lived through and and was lamenting the loss of and mm -hmm. and perhaps idealizing himself to a degree. Um, but the whole no cielo drive for Bigfoot. What I find really interesting about that moment, where I slightly disagree with you too, is that Bigfoot looks at cielo drive as like the assignment that he never got the big case yeah. that he never got because it's just as much pension commenting on the fact that like there were vultures circling around Manson and Cielo drive and who saw um, him as basically a meal ticket to a degree, because, you know, once you get into like the backstory of uh, Vince Bugliosi, the, the uh, district attorney who tried, you know, Manson, during the, the 1970 trial that became like the longest running uh, and most expensive trial in California history, like there's the whole idea that, you know, Vince Bugliosi uh, saw Manson as a meal ticket and saw him as a way to basically name, make a name for himself, which he did by becoming the, the most um, uh, lucrative true crime author in history with Helter Skelter. Um, and you want, like, I always wondered how much of Bigfoot lamenting no Cielo drive for Bigfoot is that it was almost like, well, that I never got my big break. I never got my big case, you know, and like Manson was like, he, he looks on, on at it and Cielo drive in those murders, not with empathy, but with jealousy, because it's almost like, well, those guys over there, they're becoming famous because they got, they just got that assignment. Like where's Bigfoot's assignment? Oh, and like no. Big, Bigfoot's done, you know, I'm doing commercials and shit for these <laughs> estates. In no, a no, I, I totally agree with that. I, I don't disagree with that. I, 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 you know, I think Bigfoot's a very, and my God, well, it always comes back to Bigfoot in these episodes, even when he's not in them. Oh, uh, he's the best. He's arguably the best part of the movie. I, like, I would, I would say so. As, as uh, you've brought up many times as well, like Brolin, every time he's on screen, just owns every scene that he's in. And then when he's not on screen, you're like, so when's Bigfoot coming back? <laughs> but no, I don't disagree with, with that reading of his relationship to something like Cielo Drive. I got uh, these episodes, they all blur together for me. I think it was with Alicia Malone that I mentioned that I, I think that for Bigfoot, you know, he's certainly a hypocrite. And he, uh, given his relationship to the, law enforcement body that has kind of ruined his life and killed his partner that he's still a part of. And so I do think there are some particularly loathsome, loathsome things about his personality. And one of them is, I do think he very selfishly views CLO drive as a ladder. It could have been his ladder to climb. Yeah. And I, and I, but ticket, I, man. yeah, but I also think it's, it's also not so much a meal ticket and maybe, you know, I am blind when it comes to this man. I do love him. So I, I do think that in that, that even that selfishness, that disgusting selfishness to, you know, to, to wish for your own Cielo drive is that, as I said to Alicia, he, he's like a Shane black character to me 
Although, he, imagine, and this would be a very plotless film, but imagine a Shane Black movie with a with a, bro a burned out, broken down detective who never gets the case that redeems him. And I yeah. kind of feel like, I feel like Bigfoot I, is a guy who just very selfishly, very selfishly, I'm not saying he's not selfish, but I do think that there, I think he, I think he has that thing that he, that, that he wants to, now we're going to speak in a man's and we're going to swerve hard into once upon a time in Hollywood territory. I do think that he wants to feel meaningful and I think he wants to feel useful. I don't know if I would call it a, that he wants capital R like redemption, but I do think he wants, he wants that case that he can have to be the detective he sees himself as, or the, de the detective he wants to be, but has to watch. A Renaissance detective. He is a <laughs> okay. Renaissance I have been detective. referred to more than one time by the LA Times, <laughs> which is those those two fingers pointing in the air. Okay, uh, but no, I, I do feel like that. There, I think there's a jealousy on his part that he has to. You know, he he has to see Doc being the one that gets to make moves out there, that, that he can't be the one that he understands that in this story, that, Doc gets to be the hero. And I think that there's part of him that he sees himself as the hero cop. But he as as I think we all do in our lives, you know, he sees himself as the hero of the story. And yet his his hypocrisies and his cowardice, uh, he, he acknowledges that that's not who he gets to be. and That's not who he is. And I think that he is like a lot of us where he's like, if only I had that one thing, I would have been better. If I only had that one thing, then I would have been the guy. Can I ask you a question about Bigfoot too that might piss you off? <laughs> well, my I've already got veins throbbing in my forehead, Jacob, so you go <laughs> right ahead. Fire away. Uh, do you think that there's any way that Bigfoot was involved in the murder of his partner? Because I often wonder that. And I often wonder if his actions aren't out of vengeance for grief. Well, they are grief, but perhaps there's more guilt than grief. You sick son of a bitch. How I've, could you it's say something that? To consider. How, could, how could you say? Look how sad. Look how he fillets mm. that banana. Would no, you do I, that? I agree. No, uh, that's, that's a valid question. I have never taken it that way there is a there's a brief moment in the novel and it's always weird to to try to suss well, out well and that's the other reason i bring it up is because i feel like the novel may implicate him to a degree yeah, i don't know the, the have you have you read the book have I you, have. i'm guessing you've read it okay yeah so that's the thing uh it's always hard sussing out how much of the novel is what do you call it? Canon? How when you when approaching the film because the film is so much its own thing. Sure. Uh, and how much of the backstory do we allow to count from the novel if it's not in the film? And you know, certainly there's stuff that totally would totally change the film, like the fact that you know Sordelige is conclusively real in the book. Yeah. Uh, but in in as far as the film goes, you know, there is that brief moment where when Doc is finding out that Golden Fang hitters Puck Beaverton and Adrian Prussia had a hand in Bigfoot's partner's death, Vincent right. Delicato. And uh, there's that moment where Doc's trying to figure out, well, well, Jesus Christ, was Bigfoot a part of this? Was there was there something more going on? Because this whole thing about LAPD cops, you know, and their, their kind of unswerving loyalty to each other as partners, that's kind of like the one thing I can give them credit for. 
And yet I do feel like, you know, and he even, he even says, you know, how come, you know, he basically paints a portrait of Bigfoot as Charles Bronson in 10 to midnight, just killing everybody around him and asking himself, you know, why, 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 why didn't Bigfoot do that? Why wasn't he, why, what stopped him from doing that? My reading on it is very much that the book makes clear that Bigfoot's partner was a problem. That Bigfoot's partner was someone who was not going to be a part of the more nefarious, golden fangish uh, type shit that was going down. That was that was infesting the LAPD, and so that's why he had to get out of it. That's why they had to take him out. I don't think that Doc, or excuse me, I don't think Bigfoot had a hand in it, and I don't think, I don't think he saw it coming. And I don't know. I think the difference, I, I do think, I think that a big, I think that Bigfoot's primary failing as a man and a detective and a partner in any sense of the word is that once he realized how serious the thing was and that they would be willing to take out a cop, I think once it got to that point, that's when he made the decision that he was going to, or once the opportunity came with the Wolfman kidnapping, he was going to outsource his vengeance to someone else. He was going to put it in the hands of Doc. And now so that, that... That part I agree with. Yeah. I, 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 but I, go ahead. Go ahead. You, you say your thing. Everybody knows how I feel. Well, no. And my thing is that I, I wanted to tie it back to the scene that we're going to talk about today is that um, I wonder how much of it ties into uh, the idea of uh, the Golden Fangs uh, infiltration of the LAPD um, and sort of the same way that, you know, the FBI comes in, in in the scene that we see today. And it's the only scene that you really, you see the FBI agents later in the movie, but this is really the only time that they actually open their mouths and speak. Um, you know, to Doc, let's say. Well, not the only time, but you know what I'm saying. It's that, yeah. like, this is their big moment, you know? Um, and, like, I always wondered at the end of the scene that we watched today, uh, you know, the, the one agent looks at Doc and goes, you know, you can make $300 a week uh, working as a COINTELPRO uh, age, or informant. And I wondered how much or if any of that was offered to Bigfoot um, as maybe an incentive to work with the Golden Fang when they began to infiltrate the, the uh, LAPD, is maybe he didn't realize the same way that, say, Doc or any other hippie would realize when they're offered to basically be an informant for the FBI, that it's like, yes, this $300 a week, enticing, but they didn't realize the consequences of actually taking that money. And I wondered in the, the, let's say this narrative that really doesn't exist in the book or the movie, but I kind of make up in my head to be <laughs> fair is I, I wondered if like when the golden fang comes and in, infiltrates the LAPD, if maybe there was something offered to Bigfoot or two other mm, cops or like to a degree that they don't, understand and his partner dying was unfortunately the negative byproduct of their infiltration and now he's stuck with both the longing for this man who he obviously loves <laughs> to what to what end uh we're not really sure but it's pretty clear um 
that he wanted to put something in his mouth at one point. But like, uh, <laughs> so he, subtle, Jake. Well, I'm just saying, <laughs> he's sucking that banana down, man. Yeah, but, and uh, I gotta tell you, those those don't taste very good. Those bananas. I, I'm. You know what? I bless listen, my guests. When I listen to that, yeah, um, when I listened to that episode, I I was really shocked at your your displeasure with the chocolate covered banana because I find the chocolate covered banana to be delicious, <laughs> and that's not a sexual euphemism. It's it's <laughs> a. It's a violent, it's a violent mishmash of taste and texture that is just not for me. I did not, I did not like it. I did You're not. a strange guy, man. I got, I got, banana is very good. I'm on the host of a goddamn and hair of ice podcast. <laughs> there is, there are, there are problems at home. Let's say that. But uh, no, it's I, I do very much wonder uh, if perhaps that was the byproduct of that well you know it's not god we are we are really getting to some nerd ass debate here about these fictional characters i will say if we are going to cull a little bit from the book that there is a scene after in the book after bigfoot has decided to kick mr sportello and he drives him (laughs) Drives him to the impound to pick up his car from you know, L.A. to him Woodland Hills. Kicking Pills. him, that would that would be assault, Travis. You're gonna kick him. <laughs> Greatest stroke in the goddamn movie. But uh, he's he's driving Doc out to Woodland Hills from L.A. to go pick up his car. And in that scene, Bigfoot does try to get Doc to be a paid informant, offers yeah. him cash, and he or he offers either you know he's like, look, we've got warehouses of confiscated weed. If that's what you want. So I yeah. don't know if all the, and again, we're talking about the book now, which who knows how much of that can be considered in keeping with the film. But in the book, uh, Bigfoot is more than happy to try to entice Doc to become an informant as well, which I don't know that he would do if he was also having this kind of mournful existential crisis about having sold his own soul to a force far larger and more dangerous than he realized. I don't know. I don't know that he would do it again, unless Bigfoot truly is, you know, completely far more morally bereft than I give him credit for. I don't think that he would do that. But well, uh, you know, we'll have to have it, Thomas Pinchon on and, and you know ask him directly, I guess, because you know, I, I I could see it as you said, where he does he does initially work with the thing. Kind of in the way that Coy Harlingen did, uh, where, you know, he says, look, you know, me and my wife, we were on heroin. The baby looked like hell. We, I wasn't doing doing my family any good at home. I thought maybe I could do some good here. And it's only after I signed on that I realized this is just a gang. And it's all about just keeping us in line. And perhaps there, well, there very well could have been something like that similar with Bigfoot, where, you know, he is a 1950s law and order man. And this is an organization that very much seems to fit into that monochrome 1955 vision of the world. And it could probably initially be appealing before realizing how how truly dark and uh, selfish and evil their ends are. Well, like the Fang, I you know what you you refer to it as a gang and it is referred to as sort of a gang in the movie as well. But like um, that's the CIA, right? Like that's how I always interpret. Well, that's how I always interpreted the Golden Fang as not a an operation or like a drug cartel. I always interpreted it as being, you know, an extension of the CIA. And well, the, what, how the CIA they was a drug cartel. 
Well, CIA. that's what I mean. Like yeah. they're like an extension of their work in uh, Vietnam and Indochina and Air America and things like that. Um, to where like, uh, and it's kind of one of the things that I, I did want to bring up as we talk more and more about this is that, you know, one of the things I did to prepare for this podcast is I revisited one of my favorite books from the last year or so, a, a book called Chaos, uh, Charles yep. Manson, the CIA and the secret history of the 60s by this guy named Tom O'Neill, which basically chronicles 20 years of research into Man- the Manson case and how this guy basically became obsessed with the idea of uh, not only, you know, Vince Bugliosi basically being kind of the big bad and orchestrating the trial to a degree so that he so that its narrative basically fit the narrative that the L.A. County sheriffs and the D.A. wanted, but also the idea that like the CIA had infiltrated um, the L.A. County sheriffs and the LAPD to a degree that they were basically pulling the strings and that Manson could very well have been. And granted, this is when you start to spill into really crazy ass fucking conspiracy theory levels. But like (laughs) that Manson could have acted as an agent for either the CIA's chaos program or the FBI's COINTEL program uh, to kind of infiltrate uh, the counterculture that the way that they had been doing uh, since the late 50s with like the the, you know, the Red Scare, the communist scare. Uh, I believe COINTELPRO was established in like 1957 or 58. And that was like their original goal was to was to smash, quote unquote, communism, which was all yep. bullshit anyway. But like and then it basically evolved into um, essentially disrupting any sort of any political group. Yeah, basically any subversive point, group, any political uh, group that uh, J. Edgar Hoover um, or the CIA saw as a direct threat to the status quo, you know, things like uh, the the student movement out in Berkeley, uh, the Black Panthers. Um, and uh, that's what I always found interesting is reading this book and kind of like listening to your podcast and everything and then watching the movie is how much of this kind of bled into my interpretation uh, of, of the movie itself is because I saw it and I was like, well, no, the Fang is, you know, that's the CIA. Like that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> and, sure, and I, and I will say, if you could ever have a double feature of a film with a book, you could do a lot worse than Inherent Vice and Chaos because well, it's not so much of a spoiler, but you know, a big part of a big part of the book chaos posits that the all of helter skelter as a motivation for the Tate LaBianca murders was horseshit that it was done. It was, it was orchestrated by Manson and his family to there was a Manson family member named Bobby Beausoleil who got arrested for killing a guy and yeah, Gary Hinman. Yeah. He killed Gary Beausoleil and two of the family girls killed Gary Hinman. They got arrested for it. And in a panic, Beausoleil called Manson and said, "You got to go. You got to go put a sign out there in the world, make it look like the killing, the, these ki- this killing is still happening. So they'll think the real killer is still out there. They'll let me go." There's a lot of people that believe that's that was the actual motivation for the 
for you know all the the, the handwriting political piggy the blood uh, the blood writing on the walls and things like that at the uh tate labianca murders was to basically say oh no no it wasn't Beausoleil was these other people. They're still out there somewhere. You got the wrong guy. Let him go. The point of that is, you know, the author of the book goes through and goes through all these different permutations, as as you said, you know, maybe Manson is part of this anti-subversive group. Maybe he's working for the government. Whatever the case may be, the author firmly believes that Helter Skelter was not the motivation for those killings. And essentially, the book ends with this very kind of diffuse confusion uh, in in which the, the author more or less says, look, I don't have an answer. I don't have a grand unifying answer for any of this. I just know that what we've been told is the answer isn't the truth. Right. And, and, and I, I very meeting Manson. Yeah. And I, and I, I very much feel like that is, that could be the, the cultural or political ethos of both inherent vice, the book and the film, which is, is that, look, I, you know what, what this means, that's kind of up to you. I mean, look, I mean, I'm obviously it's, it's up in the air. I'm, I'm making a podcast about what the hell this could possibly mean because there is, there is no definitive answer. And that's, that's the only thing we can know is that there is no answer. And I think that there really is no ultimate answer about inherent vice, just like there may be no ultimate answer about why those, horrible ghoulish killings happened we just know that they did and all we can really know is that we don't know why and i feel like so yeah if you want to get real pretentious with it so chaos would be a good book to read both before or after watching it Heron vice they they do go well together in that let me tell you hazy lazy go ahead i was gonna say let me tell you i got real pretentious with it (laughs) (laughs) well hey you are in the right goddamn place if you want to get pretentious with it this is the place to do it one last pretentious thing I'm going to say before we should probably jump into this scene proper and actually talk about this film. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you talk, we, we're talking about COINTEL informants, COINTEL pro informants, and we're talking about LAPD informants, and we're talking about Doc's vision of himself as maybe being a little bit closer on the, the shithead Venn diagram vis-a-vis his relationship with Shasta than he actually thought he was maybe a little closer to Wolfman than maybe he realized. I think that this is a really interesting scene to talk about that because this is one of those moments, as you said, where you can see how easy it is to slip into the other side, the other political or philosophical side, because they will make it more comfortable for you. 300 extra dollars a week. That's not a bad deal. Yeah, Uh, exactly. There is a slippery slope of just wanting to be comfortable and not doing it because you want to be evil and not sitting there. You know, not everyone is Rudy Blatnoy, DDS, you know, kind of nefariously involved uh, for 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 sheer hedonism's sake or no one. Not everybody is a, a morally vacant to steal Jim Hemphill's phrase from the last episode, Crocker Fenway. You know, a lot of times it's just this hazily interlinked lattice of beneficiaries. Uh, you know, that's how it happens. That's how some of these groups can pull you in. You're just a coy harlingen, just trying to straighten up your life and figure yourself out and get off, get off smack and keep your daughter alive and pay to keep the roof over her head. So, yeah, you just decide to join this kind of conservative Republican group. And before you know it, you're part of, you know, this philosophical organization that's kind of destroying the world. And I feel like 
there is a lot of that in this scene where you see how easy it would be. And bless his heart, Doc doesn't do it. And I love Doc for that. But you see how easily he could make his life if he just kind of went along with it. If he just says, sure, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a professional snoop anyway. So I, I always notice things and not everything is privileged. If I pick something up, if I, you know, I put a put a a cup to a wall and I overhear something on the other side you might find interesting. Yeah, I can let you know. It's all it's all you're asking for. You're not asking for much. And I think that, that that's something that this scene really shows. And I think that that's something that connects with what you said about the sex scene and about how easy it is to slip into being not the good guy. Yeah. And also, like, uh, to bring it back to Bigfoot as well and how he was basically pulling the strings the entire time, like, it, it, it again made me think about just how you can reinterpret, and you've brought this up on... Uh, previous episodes as well is that like you first watched the movie and I did this too when I first saw it in, in, in at Bonamathon is that um, you watch the movie and you're like man this guy's like real goofy he's kind of like it, it, is he helping Doc out is he are they friends like even though he has this obvious antagonistic uh, relationship with not only Doc but hippies in general mm-hmm. um you know, but uh, but then you kind of revisit it and you sit there, and you go, oh, no, he's pulling the strings like he's yeah. he's pushing Doc towards an answer. And to bring it kind of back to chaos, there's a passage in chaos where I started thinking about big. And again, it, it kind of pushed me uh, to think about Bigfoot differently is that um, Tom O'Neill goes into a particular police detective named uh, William Herman. Um who worked, uh, you know, in the LAPD and that he was, uh, perhaps became a chaos or counterintelligence, uh, agent as well and collaborated with, um, but this passage in particular just made me think of the whole Renaissance detective thing, um, (laughs) to where uh, he says a long time, uh, Lieutenant with the LAPD Herman had an unusual background for law enforcement. He had a doctorate in psychology. He specialized in quelling insurgencies. He developed one of the first computer systems to track criminals and predict violent outbreaks in cities. Daryl Gates, the head of the LAPD from 1978 to 1992, hailed him as a genius, a renaissance detective. That is me. (laughs) But praising his technical aptitude in particular and just reading that passage again just made me think of bigfoot now obviously william herman uh i don't think bigfoot held a doctorate he certainly didn't design a computer and like it actually goes into his background even deeper is that he you know spent quite a few times uh, overseas probably working within the project phoenix program um uh, training uh you know gorillas and 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 uh, uh, let's say counterintelligence uh, insurgents uh, in Vietnam. So, like, I don't think Bigfoot did any of that, but it just was another thing to consider as I basically watched this movie and was like, you can almost draw parallels between these people from actual history and uh, these fictional caricatures that that uh, Pynchon was drawing and and PTA adapts for the big screen. Wow, I'm you've got me looking at uh, Bigfoot like he's almost like David Ferry or something at this point. Jeez. He's not quite David Ferry, <laughs> but I think he's more. I do believe he's more sinister than 
you do, I think. Like, I, I, I find him to be uh, very uh, menacing for a lot. He's hilarious. He's the, he, you know, every time he, he jumps, he enters the movie again, like, you're like, thank God Bigfoot's back. It's, it's, this is going to be great. But also, I, I interpret the whole scene where he breaks down the door at the end and, like, eats the weed in the most ridiculous moment of the whole movie. I think I interpret that, interpret that slightly different from you as well because it's just this final act of, like, frustration and, 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 uh, and maybe he's not trying to empathize with Doc as much as he's just finally consuming what he sees to be, like, Doc's soul as a means <laughs> to basically uh, push forward and maybe finally break out of his uh, kind of static existence within the LAPD. It's entirely possible. I don't know that I buy it, but it's entirely, as with all <laughs> things inherent vice, it is entirely possible. All I know is, is there's no official answer, just like no. in chaos. I, I agree. I, Bigfoot is kind of an ominous figure. I think, um, you know, there is something a little nerve wracking about him. There is something a little scary about him. Uh, but I, I, does he want to like uh, absorb Doc's soul? I probably wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I would say I, I would probably stick to the, to the supposition. I think he wants to be Doc. I think he wants to be the hero, but I do think he, as I said many times before, he does have that very kind of Ralph Meeker vibe where yes. you you like him, you like watching him, but you'd probably be scared shitless if you were riding alongside with him in his car. What even if he's not blowing a banana, there's just something about him that feels, uh, you know, the, the like the Godfather just feels a little dangerous. You you, you don't want to be right next to him, especially when he might blow. No pun intended. He also strangely reminds me of a James Elroy character uh, at times. Um, and I think about him a lot the same way that I think about uh, Russell Crowe in L.A. Confidential is that he's just this like beefy he's a force old, of rage. He, yeah, he's just this beefy lug of a human being who's <laughs> going to beat down any door that's in, in that's in his way. Um, Brolin, of course, much funnier than Russell Crowe in that movie. But uh, <laughs> I mean, Russell Crowe's character in that movie, quite tragic. But um, you know, that's also how I view Bigfoot, too, is just this connection to that hardened uh, L.A. noir detective who, uh, you know, is 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 this almost paragon of masculinity to a certain degree. Yeah, totally, totally. And like Doc says in this very scene, he's real intelligent about this kind of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of which. Let's say you and I actually watch the scene that we're supposed to be talking about and come back and actually talk about it. What a novel concept. You want to give that a try? Sure. I feel like we have been talking about it, though. It's just, you know, <laughs> we, we haven't had the actual. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to do that. We'll be right back and we'll continue to talk about the scene. Flatway, this is Agent Borderline, FBI. I just had to use the bathroom. It's been brought to our attention that not too long ago you had a visit from a black prison militant calling himself Tariq Khalil. We naturally became curious. Let's talk upstairs, Larry. Bridges burning, bridges burning. 
Did I miss an episode? I love you guys every Sunday night, 8 p.m. We like investigating and spending energy on black nationalist hate groups. That's the chronology, really. Khalil visits your place of business. The next day, a known prison acquaintance of his, Glenn Charlock, is slain. Michael Wolfman disappears, and you get arrested on suspicion and somewhat mysteriously let go again. Yeah. Well, have you talked to Bigfoot Bjornsson about all this? Because he's real intelligent about this kind of shit. Mr. Bjornsson's antipathy at the federal level is well known. <laughs> uh, some guys are like that. Mm. So, what is it you want with me? Ordinarily, we're the ones asking the questions here. No, sure thing, fellas, but, uh... Aren't we all in the same business? There's no need to be insulting. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us what Mr. Khalil had to say when he visited you the other day? Because <laughs> he's privileged and I'm a client is why. If it has a bearing on the Wolfman case, then we may have to disagree. Look, I, I really wish I could help you guys out, but what I can't figure is if you're so focused on the Black Panthers, then what's with your interest in Mickey Wolfman? With somebody uh, playing Monopoly uh, with federal housing money? You figure Mickey's kidnapping is a Black Panther operation? They put the snatch on Mickey trying to prove a political point or maybe a nice shot at some ransom money. Maybe you've at least thought of putting that forward as a cover story for whatever did happen. Do you realize how thoroughly we can fuck your life up? Uh -huh. All right. Could be frank a minute. Why stop now? Please. Right. You be Dino, you be the other guy, and tell uh, Penny Davis Jr. what a lovely day we had. Thank you. As a COINTELPRO informant, you could be making up to $300 a month, Larry. Just consider that. U.S. dollars? And we'll throw in a Book of Mormon. Free. And we're back, and I know you, you're chomping at the bit. You've got something you want to hit, so you hit it. Well, um, oh, again, w when I watch this scene, um... It makes me remember that uh, in my head, Paul Thomas Anderson is making two types of movies at the mm -hmm. same time, is that he is very much making this um, humanistic uh, film about, uh, you know, the, the, the ways that we, we deal with loss, the inherent vice of time, as you, you've kind of quoted uh, Joan Didion again and again on the show. Um, However, this is also uh, the moment where he's he's exploring the political aspects or the political imp implications of the book, because, you know, as much as this is a roadblock in Doc's mystery and he's basically trying to talk his way around them to a certain degree, mm -hmm. uh, it makes me think of a quote um, that occurs in the movie, too, in, in its Sorley's uh, narration to where she asks, uh, was it possible that at every gathering, concert, peace rally, loving, being, freaking, here up north, back east, wherever, some dark crews had been busy all along reclaiming the music, the resistance to power, the sexual desire to effort to every day, all they could sweep up for the ancient forces of greed and fear? Gee, he thought, I don't know. 
because <laughs> what this makes me think of is how uh, not only, you know, forces like Manson or like, uh, you know, neo-Nazi bikers, let's say, uh, might be infiltrating um, the, the peace and love movement, but also uh, our own government and our own intelligence agencies like the FBI and their COINTELPRO uh, or, or programs or the CIA and the chaos program were infiltrating, you know, the hippie movement or attempting to infiltrate the hippie movement and basically take control and disrupt it to a degree. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what this scene is showing you is because um, have you ever not to kind of bring it back to, let's say, another pretentious level, um, but let's have do you it. ever have you ever heard of the term hysterical realism? Yeah. OK. So you know what I'm about to say. Um, and for those listening at home, hysterical realism was a, uh, a categorization of, of uh, literature. Um, it was coined, it was a term that was kind of coined in the early 2000s, I believe actually the year 2000, uh, in the New Republic uh, by this, this English critic named James Wood. Um, he was writing an essay on Zadie Smith's uh, white teeth. And basically what Wood was talking about was uh, with hysterical realism was that he he's basically describing the great American novel. What we yeah. have in a very cliched sense come to term uh, the great American novel. And he says it's it, he calls it the big ambitious novel that knows a thousand things but does not know a single human being. And the types of books that he's, he's lumping white teeth in with are stuff like David Foster Wallace's Infinite, Infinite Jest, uh, Don DeLillo's Underworld, uh, and Pinchon's uh, Gravity's Rainbow. Perpetual um, Motion Machines. That's what he ex- called them, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I believe, to a degree... That Paul Thomas Anderson is making a hysterical, uh, a hysterical or a hysterically realist movie here, and that scenes like this with these FBI agents are just as much exploring notions and ideas and how these uh, people aren't so much human beings as they are avatars for things that were occurring within this uh, particular decade and American history in general. Um, And I think if you kind of come at the movie from that sideways angle, you can extract uh, a lot, a decent amount more of meaning than if you were to just kind of look at it as uh, a mystery or this movie about relationships or whatever. Like he's just as much commenting on, um, the evolution of American history and how Doc is becoming, let's say, quote unquote, woke to the idea that, hey, the decade that he uh, idealizes and loves and lived through and kind of still pines for might have been the entire time tainted with a, a true evil from both the, you know, the government and forces beyond his control. Yeah, that I, I totally agree with you there. And I, I especially having read the the pension book which is so much more bitter and i think so much more politically driven and philosophically driven there's very much that end of easy writer mood of we blew it 
that you know we were part of the problem too we were all part of the problem it wasn't just this kind of airily defined bad guy it was all of us and we let this fail and we brought it down is that is that what you mean or mm, sort no, of not at all. sort of uh you're on the right track but i think it's more realizing your own naivete mm. about things that you love and yeah. the fact that hey you know what maybe we weren't all in love together. Maybe there were things that were trying to manipulate us the entire time and infiltrate oh, yeah. these. And like, um, because, uh, you know, that's even part of like what you deal with, with, with Mickey Wolfman and him giving all his money away as being like, maybe I was a force for bad and, you know, for evil. Maybe I was contributing to basically the, the poisoning of a generation myself you know um and it's that's what i find really interesting about this movie is because like this isn't the first time that paul thomas anderson has done this in his career uh to me the closest cousin that you have um to inherent vice and you know a lot of people say the master and i agree with that in in terms of just a, a a construction or visual sense um, but to me, the the movie that this reminds me the most of, um, at least in ethos, is Punch Drunk Love, um, because yeah. in how I believe PTA is trying to make one movie, like and with Punch Drunk Love, like he he enters into Punch Drunk Love basically being like, I want to make an Adam Sandler movie, and he even admits that um, you've listened to the. I, I mean, I don't even know why I answered, asked this question because there's no doubt that you've listened to this, but his Mark Maron uh, interview. I have, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's where it's where the, we get the line. It's about love, baby. Yeah, exactly. So, like, um, you know, he, he talks about wanting to make an Adam Sandler movie there uh, with Punch Drunk Love and how, like, you know, if you were to give him, uh, you know, 10 movies to choose... You know, he's always going to sit there and choose the Adam Sandler film. He's going to watch the Happy Gilmore. <laughs> he's going to watch the Billy Madison. I mean, he even cites Big Daddy as being the movie <laughs> that inspired him to want to, to work oh, with uh, with Adam Sandler. Is that he's basically the like he's like, hey, man, I'm going to be the I'm going to watch the movie that makes me feel good over the one that, you know, I have to engage with on any kind of deep emotional or intellectual level. It's not a bad thing. It's just like, that's just the movie I want to watch. And it that's is. the movie he, he quote unquote wanted to make with Punch Drunk Love, which he <laughs> sort of did. Like he sort of makes an Adam Sandler movie with that. But at the same time, he abstracts the idea um, to such a degree that it, it almost becomes impenetrable at certain times. And I think he does the same thing with Inherent Vice in that, he wants to make this movie about relationships. And he wants to make this movie about loss. And he wants to make this movie about what, what are the things that you can't live without that time takes away with, uh, takes away from you. Um, and he does, he succeeds in doing that. But at the same time, he's also abstracting uh, the idea of, of the LA noir and the LA mystery to where like uh, the mystery here matters but it doesn't matter in the way that like solving it, who cares by the end? Yeah. What, what it really is about is doc 
having his eyes open to both his own role that he played in his relationship with Shasta, as well as perhaps the role that the hippie new movement was manipulated uh, to play uh, because of, you know, forces like the Golden Fang, or in my interpretation, the CIA, uh, COINTELPRO, uh, you know, things of that nature and how like Manson infiltrated it. And we saw the dark side of the hippie movement and everything was basically poisoned. It was the idea that like here the, at the end, the solution to the mystery is man, shit might've been more fucked up than I ever gave it credit for. <laughs> and I, I'm really fascinated by that idea. Yeah. You know, I don't think you're wrong. And I think that you can look at this scene really easily, in fact, as a kind of, I don't even know if this is a word, an epiphanal moment for Doc when, you know, they're interrogated. The, the, these, these two feds, agents Borderline and Flatweed, are, <laughs> they're bracing Doc. What, which, what names, by the way? Yeah, it's Pension, man. He knows what he's uh, doing. Yeah, exactly. He's, he seems to, he seems to know, he's a pretty good writer. He's yeah. all right. He seems like he knows what he's up to, what he's doing. But uh, when they're bracing him and they're talking about, you know, we know that you, you know, you spoke to a, a militant black nationalist yesterday. And now today we've got a dead body of his enemy from prison. We, well, well, what is this? You, you, and, and how quickly Doc is able to kind of use that Dober's ESP to be like, well, what the hell would what does this got to do with Mickey Wolfman? And he's, you know, what's what you say? What's he say? You know, if you're so focused on the Black Panthers, then what is your interest in Wolfman? You know, is somebody and he just kind of starts. You see the way his mind works as he and you realize what a good detective he actually is. Yeah. When he's like, is somebody playing Monopoly money with federal housing? He's like, no, that can't be it. Or do you think it's a the, the Wolfman kidnapping? It's Black Panther op operation. They put the snatch on Mickey. And then he's like, no, 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 wait is that just something you're thinking of putting forward as the cover story for what really did happen? And that to me is where you, you realize how sharp doc is and you can tie it back to that, to, to, to chaos where you basically have an author looking at the Manson murders going, well, could it have been this? No. Could it have been that? No, not really. It's just, I don't know what it is, but it's gotta be, it's just, it's all a cover for what really happened. And that's not what I'm, and I'm not going to be able to find out what that was. I just know that this is a lie. And I feel like you're, you're right in that this does seem like a moment where Doc's kind of looking around. He's looking at the politics of his day. He's looking at his generation and realizing how much of this might've been a scam or a story sold to them by right. these, these positions of power. You know, what's the other thing that this reminds me of, um, this scene and and the movie in particular uh have you read any of don winslow's cartel novels i have i'm a big fan of don okay so like particularly power of the dog in mm -hmm. which um this is very much like the thing that i love about power of the dog and what and it's really what hooked me into his uh his novels is because like like i like the force i like um, uh, the winter of Frankie machine, uh, like, but those are almost just straight ahead pulp works. Yeah. You know, he's writing cop, cop books. He's writing hitman books, uh, mafia stuff. Like it's all very simple. Uh, and that's no offense to Don Winslow. He's very fucking good at what he does. Yeah, they're great. But they're, like, they are great. Pulp. They're, yeah. They're great, great, great pulp, but uh, power of the dog combines that 
with an almost like alternative history lesson, let's mm-hmm. say, to where you learn about how the cartels were essentially put into place in uh, Mexico and South America and everything, and how that extends to the CIA, their work in Vietnam, Air America, and how we, uh, th- those forces kind of conspired along with them, sometimes against their own will, um, and ended up installing this very nefarious, horrible, deadly uh, institution um, that continues to basically poison the world to this day. Um, it, it reminds me of that and to where, again, uh, you have Art Keller in those books, the, the central CIA agent who uh, basically has his eyes open to the, the idea throughout these books. Well, really throughout the first book and then the rest of the, the, the next two books, The Cartel and The Border, it's really about his uh, battle against these people because of what happened. Um, but he has his eyes opened to this like, holy shit. We were all we were sold a lie the whole time. And I was even complicit and even helped push that lie forward. Um, and I always find that those books to be interesting, uh, let's say, companion pieces to uh, interpreting inherent vice or like reading something like chaos or something is that alternative history of America is always going to fascinate me because I, I am. uh almost innately a very paranoid questioning person. Um, never quite to like conspiracy theory levels. Uh, that is the one thing that I like about Tom O'Neill's book is that he very much walks you through like his thought process and is even like, you know, I realize that I'm bordering on like total <laughs> nut job yeah. lunacy at certain points. Uh, but I, I love these stories about how these individuals having their eyes opened up to maybe the lies that they've been told the entire time. Because, and you've said this on the show many times, is that you watch TV nowadays, especially with the fucking morons that we deal with uh, on a governmental level. Uh, now is that you just watch it and you're just like, like this whole impeachment thing that's going on, not to get too political, but like how much of this is a sham, how much of this is fucking meaningless. And it's just all a a dog and pony show. That's really going to amount to nothing. Trump's going to walk away. No punishment is ever going to be implemented and the damage to America has been done. And we're only really going to start uncovering how deep that sort of corruption and horrible, uh, influence and insidious poison that you know this administration has kind of uh, injected into America and the, and the global, let's say, ecosphere as well. Twenty years from now, you know, we're it, right now we're just experiencing it. You only get to uncover history in hindsight for the most part. Oh God, exactly. And boy, you and Jim Hempel, my last guest, you guys would be a barrel of monkeys to go to a bar with with him saying <laughs> that we're all going to end up in a Mad Max uh, post-nuclear warlord zone in a couple of years. I don't but, think yeah. we're ever going to get to that point. My <laughs> my my uh, worldview is much bleaker as I just am waiting for that day where I look over the horizon and see the mushroom cloud and be like, all right, guys, well, it was great. We're all dead now. You know, my next guest... Better be super positive. This is two in a row now for telling doom, for telling, uh, you know, nuclear winter and doom. We're not going to go down that road because I'm going to get all depressed and sad at the end of this episode. But I do think that you're right. And I do think 
that I, I, I think a definitely a big fundamental part of the story book or film is about not realizing the level of damage done until you kind of hang back and look around and assess. And it takes time to do that. And I think that that's so much of what the, especially the novel was, uh, you know, the novel being so much of a, a hangover book to the way this is a hangover movie, but a hangover book for a decade and beginning to look back at the sixties and again, you know, to bring it back to captain America and easy writer going, Oh wow, we blew it, but not, we didn't blow it at the end. It was always, it was, it was blown from the beginning. We never had a shot. The damage had already been done. The wrong people yeah. had always, the wrong people had always been in power. We were never going to make a difference. The And also the, how complicit were you the entire yeah. time? Which brings it back to, as you said, at the, at the beginning of this episode, when doc begins to wonder how different, you know, I, I do believe doc is a good man. I don't think that doc is oh, a sure. villain, no, no, no. Yeah. but there it's is not, that, there is all that good people have, but that's what makes you a good person. Yeah. Right. Is, is, is actual that, that contemplate the willingness like, to uh, contemplate and yeah. be horrified and be horrified and, by that contemplation and, and what you a find certain, there. a certain level of inventory and say like, I fucked up here. Exactly. And, and I can see then why with that mindset, you might even doubt my beloved Bigfoot for a moment and wonder what he might have had to do with the death of his partner. Uh, there is, I think that is definitely, I think a strain in the, in, in the film and the book where it's people looking around going, what part did I play in this? You know, I, I feel yeah. like I'm a good guy. I feel like I'm the hero of my story, but what did I do? What did I not do? What, you know, was it, you know, I think it's also, I think very, very pertinent that we never really find out why Shasta was driven away. It is never really explicated. And, Doc seems clueless as and has absolutely no understanding why she might have wanted to leave him. And I'm not saying that he did anything nefarious, but I think it's that's it's it's something I think to do with that inability to to truly see that what went wrong was actually going wrong way before you ever realized that there was a fissure or a crack or a damage in the firmament that Shasta's reasons for leaving probably existed long before Doc even began to realize the relationship was ending. Just like, you know, as we sit here now, the looking at the the pageantry on the news every day, the horrifying pageantry on the news every day, probably not thinking not or not realizing how far back the seeds of this current madness were placed. And we might we'd probably be shocked if we really were able to find out how far back it goes to to where it first became inevitable how long ago it probably was yeah and and i gotta say dark as that is and a gloomy mood you've put me in now jacob you did exactly 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 what i hoped you would do which is i knew and having you come on you were going to get me to look at this scene in in a, in a way that I hadn't looked at it before. I, I, it's not that I disliked this scene. In, in a film of which I am completely and obviously obsessed, this just happened to be the lone sequence that I would watch and go, yeah, I have nothing really to say about this. It's it's pretty obvious. The FBI, they're in on the, the Wolfman Snatch, and they're just creating a cover story for it. What, what am I supposed to say about that? It's, it's a bit of plot that gets me to the next scene. But uh, I now see it as being something that is rather politically and philosophically rich and is going to send me now off into the night feeling really depressed about my nation's future. So I'm I thank glad you for that, that I was I thank you for that. Yeah man, I'm glad I was here to help just ruin your day. <laughs>
you have you 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 have happily ruined my day and spoiled this wonderful film for me destroyed my viewpoint of bigfoot bjornsson you have you've totally deconstructed me and disassembled me as a human being but you know how i doubt that (laughs) yeah i'll be back next week talking about what a quiet hero what a quiet (laughs) hero at heart bigfoot wants to be but i appreciate your viewpoint i appreciate you bringing this viewpoint to me this is one of the best most enjoyable parts of the show for me is just seeing how easily filtered this film is through other people's minds and how everyone this film is so strangely strangely constructed that you you kind of like kind of like in chaos you can bring almost any theory to this and it'll hold a little bit of water and it will make a little bit of sense you might not be for sure that it's the right answer but you know it's a better uh, it's a better answer than what we were given and that's that's what's so great about talking about this film with people especially you and as i said you you've really kind of saved this scene for me you've given me something to uh, to toy with now now i have a reason to live again i have a reason to live again jacob thank you well all right <laughs> on that note uh we should probably wrap this up and but before we do tell people where they can find your stuff i am on twitter at uh jacob q knight um and right now i mostly write for rebellermedia.com where you can catch me uh every friday uh you know either doing my original outlaws column where i basically kind of run down the history of exploitation cinema or uh the alternating or, or alternating Fridays where I talk about, well, really anything. Uh, this <laughs> week, I think I have coming up, I have a retrospective on Don Johnson and how I think he's one of our great subversive uh, movie stars in a way. So look for that. Please tell me you write about the hotspot. No. Oh. Um, I don't particularly like the hotspot. I got. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't. I don't. It's a little overcooked for me. Oh. I do talk about the vastly underrated uh, Dead Bang from John Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer. Yes, exactly. Uh, one of the great '80s action movies that I think is one of the great subversive uh, '80s action movies of all time. It is kind of one of the keys to unlocking Johnson's uh, appeal as an undercover subversive movie star. So. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. You know, I got to say, this conversation about Don Johnson has been this episode in microcosm. You break my heart a little bit at the top, and then you win me back at the end. You bring me back in the end, and you give me something. Well, like I said at the beginning, I've never lived up to anybody's expectations, (laughs) but I'll tell you what, it's entertaining to watch me try. It is. And you know what? I've, I've loved having you on today. Anybody out there, go read Jacob's stuff. I find him to be one of the most entertaining and insightful film writers out there i always come away i always come away with something new just like i have today i always come away with something new and a different way of looking at at a film whether i've seen it a million times or i've seen it never he always gives me something to work with when i read his work and it's, it's truly incredible so everyone go read jacob jacob you go relax i appreciate you coming on today thanks for talking to me about this wacky little movie and i'll be back next time with some dark and lonely work somebody's got to do it right and it's gotta be you thanks for having me on this has been great
In his book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, Tom O'Neill posits that for all the hazy strands of paranoid plotting and salacious suspicions and possible reasons behind the Manson family murders, he really can't be sure which, if any, of them are really true, except for the official version, which can only be a lie. And so what's it mean if we buy into the official version of a story, one that we see in retrospect was always a lie? What's it mean to sacrifice just a little bit of soul for a whole lot of comfort? Gee, our host thinks. By the end of Inherent Vice, Doc, sadly, probably knows the answer to that. Will that knowledge save our wayward P.I. or push him even further into the fog surrounding the fang? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.